All right, welcome today. I am so happy to be joined by Mado Hesselink, who is an amazing yoga teacher, and she helps other yoga teachers integrate their heart-centered mission with practical business and teaching strategies so that they can make both a living and an impact. And she is the host of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. It's a top-rated podcast with over 500,000 downloads. And Mado draws from 16 years of teaching experience to share, share relevant stories, practical tips, and down-to-earth advice. Through individual and group programs, she guides participants to leverage their unique perspectives, talents, and vision into systems to build a successful and sustainable career that makes a difference in the world. So thanks, thanks so much for being here and for what you're doing um, in preparation for this. I got to listen to a bunch of episodes uh, and even just for myself, such helpful, useful information. Um, but I wanna start by asking you this kind of deeper question. What matters to you? Mm, great question. Connection matters. When I think about what matters, the first thing that pops into my head is my family. We were talking about that just a little bit before we started recording. I have two daughters, five-year-old and an 18-year-old, and a husband. So that's, for me, number one. The other thing that matters to me is growth. I feel that that's what we're on the planet to do. So... I'm interested in growth and I believe that yoga, the framework of yoga is a really fantastic and useful framework for seeing ourselves as we are seeing the world as it is and embarking on that project of growth. And within that also, I think authenticity is essential that we have to be real with even just with ourselves in order to grow. Cause I think one of the biggest barriers to growth is denial. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I love all those answers. Uh, I kind of want to touch on, on all of them, but I'll start with growth. Um, so I'll say for me, like I've noticed that there's been some sort of a progression coming to a place where growth is important to me. Where like, I've identified like, that's what I'm interested in doing. Like, I want to grow. Like I want to investigate areas where I can maybe get cleaned up a little bit. Um, have you had a similar experience for yourself where it's been like, like growth has been a discovery of, of what matters to you? Yes. I feel like it's been a priority for me as long as I can remember, but that denial piece was a lot stronger when I was younger. And I had a lot of resistance against authenticity, specifically the vulnerability piece of authenticity. When I was in high school, I was into acting. And when I got to college, they started to require, or it, it became clear that in order to really be an actor, you had to be vulnerable. And in that moment, I was like, never mind. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I thought I thought I could hide on stage. And here I was now kind of next level being told that, no, it's the opposite. So that to me was the first invitation really is you have to get real with yourself in order to grow. Hmm. Yeah. I think like there's, there's an element to what you said that's important too, that it feels like natural, that like there's a part of us that that's just wired to grow. Just a part of human being is set up that growth is what we're interested in. Um, but then there seems to be uh, maybe because of influences, outside influences and insecurities that, that develop some kind of resistance to breaking through barriers, moving through obstacles that will really um, allow me to grow. Um, yeah. Anything on that? Well, see, we're complex as humans. 
And so while one part of us wants to grow, another part of us wants to be safe. And those two things are not usually the same thing. So I told you early, I told you in the email that when we were corresponding back and forth, I'm interested in neuroscience. I'm interested in psychology um, and specifically neuropsychology. And so within that framework, we understand that different regions of the brain have different roles. And the, there's a center part of the brain that is not the oldest part of the brain, but it's a very old part of the brain. And it works very quickly called the limbic system. And the primary job of the limbic system, I mean, it has lots of jobs and I don't wanna oversimplify here, but one of the primary jobs is to keep us safe, to, to recognize danger. And change and growth is a little bit dangerous. And that's why we are instinctively a little resistant to vulnerability because that's it's the very definition of danger, at least in an emotional sense. So then there's the prefrontal cortex, which has more of our, it's newer, newer part of the brain, has more of our higher levels of thinking. So we have logic there and we have the ability to predict the future, not necessarily very well, but the attempt to predict the future, the attempt to guess at what the outcome of our behavior is gonna be, comes from the prefrontal cortex. And that moves more slowly. It's a little bit of a more clunky part of our brain, even though it's more sophisticated. It also takes a lot of resources. So because the limbic system is what has helped us survive over generations, it tends to come on board faster it doesn't just tend to, it does. It's fast, it does not require conscious thought. And so this is where our higher selves, our desire for growth come into conflict with our instincts. And so I can see with my children, with myself, with the people I work with, that there is a strong predisposition to staying comfortable. And that is in conflict with growth, but that's where the potential lies, right? To, to recognize the relationship between these sides of ourselves and to learn how to live more and more in the higher levels of thinking without diminishing or rejecting the very important <laughs> limbic system and, and those instincts that have served us. Yeah, I like how you kind of broke it up into these different parts of, of, of the brain and ourselves. Uh, it, it almost feels like they could be having a conversation with each other, right? And the the part of us that, that sees uh, the benefits from growing can maybe reassure the, the limbic system and, and say, I know this doesn't uh, uh, feel like it's gonna be safe. I know it feels dangerous. But actually, it might be the safest thing that I can do, because in a way, I think it's more dangerous not to grow, right? Yeah. And the thing is that the, lim the limbic system is trigger happy. So it is designed to recognize, it sees danger where danger doesn't exist. And when you are overly fearful of danger, you get stagnant and stuck and eventually that kind of stagnation, yeah, that is dangerous in and of itself. But the calculation of the limbic system is that it's better to see danger where it doesn't exist than to miss danger. So you're absolutely right that we need to use our higher levels of thinking to kind of self-manipulate our limbic system into chilling out a little bit. And this is one of the things that some of the yogic techniques are really great at. For example, pranayama, um, even meditation, movement, all of these things can help the nervous system reduce its sense of threat, being threatened. Hmm. How about your experience with, with uh, gratitude? maybe as a, as a practice. So I find that that really, that really flips things over, especially in terms of my, uh, uh, my fear and sense of danger. 
is instead of, you know, worrying about the future and are things going to be okay and be able to survive, if I instead kind of shift to the perspective that, gosh, like maybe I wasn't even owed all these things that I've been given and how many life experiences have I had and, and how much easier is my life maybe compared to my ancestors, right? Like all of that, that's fine with my rational mind. Like my rational mind, like jives with that, that it feels real. Like I can hold on to that. Um, any, anything to share from your maybe experiences with, with using gratitude as a practice? Yeah. I mean, I agree a hundred percent and it is just like all yogic practices. I find that the formal practice is really a container to help us bring those attitudes and behaviors into daily life. So the way this was just every day I have these moments of I've trained my brain to look around and see things to appreciate and to really, because the other thing is that nothing that I have is guaranteed to stay. I, I know this through my life experience that anything can change in an instant and my comfortable house and my beautiful family and my full belly and all of these things can change. Like I have not been promised a single one of them. So it is a part of my daily practice that it's so deeply ingrained that I don't even necessarily notice I'm doing it that much anymore. But I definitely have this feeling of the more I can appreciate this moment, the less I am going to be upset when it gets taken away. Does that make sense? Like, and I do agree with you that it helps to soothe some of those instincts because I also have the instinct still have this brain that I've always had and it, it likes to complain. It likes to see something going wrong. (laughs) So the more that I can consciously feed it, the things that are going right, I do think it, it kind of like soothes it and, and comforts it a bit. So I don't know that I have anything different to add just than agreeing with you that it's, yeah, it's a powerful practice. Yeah. And is there also a connection between this and uh, you mentioned authenticity, right? Like, does that free me up to be authentic when I'm coming from that perspective, which isn't kind of fear-based, I have to do this, I have to do that. Can I then kind of just relax and, all right, I can just be? I think so, because when we are afraid and when we are hiding ourselves, it comes from a place of feeling lack. So if we practice gratitude, then we reduce the feeling of lack. And I think that that does bring the safety of being willing to be authentic. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back to the first thing that you mentioned, which was uh, connection, connection mattering to you. Has, have you noticed the importance of connection changing for you, you know, over, over time? Um, and I'll share from, from my perspective, that when I was younger, I think I definitely also because of maybe fear and that part of my brain, I saw myself more in competition with other people, me and other human beings. And, and also I think maybe this comes up in relation to you trying to help, you know, yoga teachers um, because it seems like, Oh, am I competing against other yoga teachers? There's only so many students out there. Right. Obviously, I want to be connected to, you know, my family and my friends and those who I'm close to. But is it possible to kind of expand that sense of connection um, to, to everyone else and feel that there's enough room for everyone to take care of their their own needs? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you've 
opened up a whole bunch of different threads there. (laughs) The first one, I'll just start with the most universal and it's definitely been a powerful practice for me to feel my connection with the entirety of the universe and all that, all that is all living things as if we are all part of the same entity that is comforting. It's deeply comforting. It's deeply humbling. So I would, I would say that that is part of my practice. Although, you know, something that I practiced more consciously in the past, like that hasn't been recently a big part of my practice, but you're uh, reminding me of it is, you know, kind of bringing me back there. And then you talked about community, more on a community level with other humans, other yoga teachers, and definitely having my podcast and working with yoga teachers has helped me to cultivate that, um, you know, some of the Brahma Viharas of the desire for good for others. You're, you're familiar with the Brahma Viharas, I, I imagine. Yeah. Um, and so we have them in Pali and in Sanskrit. Sometimes I get them a little bit um, confused because they're, they're very similar to Buddhist philosophy. But um, I think it's mudita, the sympathetic joy. Is mm. that, am I remembering correctly? I think so. We can, we can look it up later and fact check ourselves, but um, this is a really powerful practice to consciously, like, it's like, comes back to the gratitude practice, but it's like gratitude for somebody else. Mm. Gratitude for the good that somebody else is experiencing. That's a pretty powerful practice to, especially to kind of counteract or be in relationship with any tendencies for envy or jealousy, um, because that's, the, the other side of the coin and what, you know, just to, to be upfront and authentic and vulnerable, I will definitely own having experienced and still sometimes experiencing those feelings when it comes to looking at other people who at first glance, maybe seem to be more successful or, have an easier time, which we don't know that that's the truth, right? That's a story we make up in our heads. But, and I don't remember where I learned this teaching, but something that's been so powerful for me is that recognition of like, oh, I'm having this feeling of envy or jealousy. What is it pointing towards in myself? What potential am I not living up to that this is pointing at? Because I don't feel jealous of Michael Phelps, right? I don't feel envious of somebody who has an entirely different predisposition, genetics, talent, hard work in a, in a completely different field for myself. And I'll just say this as well. Like I don't look at somebody who can do really contortiony yoga poses. I don't feel envious of that either because I recognize, I know that that's a matter of genetics and there's nothing that I could do to get there. So that tells me that when I feel envy, when I feel jealousy, that there's something that I've been holding back from. There's something that I've not been doing that I know I could be doing. And that person is just a mirror, right? Their, their story has actually nothing to do with me. What led to their success doesn't matter. The point is that the feelings of envy and jealousy are a invitation to look back at myself. And it, that goes back to that conversation about growth. Like, where could I grow now? Thank you for sharing that, <laughs> you know, Sure do. You know, thinking about envy and jealousy, I I have to say that like I noticed a little bit of that even listening to your podcast, right? Because it's like, wow, she's so organized. She's got this together, right? And like, I have to constantly like check myself where it's like, no, like good for her. Like 
that's, that's great. And I don't need to compare myself, you know, to you. And I, I think the, 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 the part that you're, that you're talking about of like where w- w- that's a sign inside me that I can step forward to and, and really do some things that I want to do is I think the point that I'm going to maybe feel really good if I take on that action. Um, but you know, what's really interesting to me is like, okay, now I see this, I see the, the action that maybe I want to take, take on, but like, what is my relationship with that action? that I'm, that I'm going to take. And I'm, I'm very interested in like, can it be fun? Right. Like, cause I've spent so much time with it. Just like, Oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. And, and I just don't want to really like live like that anymore. And I, and I still do to a, a large degree, but like the shift that I'm making is like, can this be fun? Can I enjoy making progress on this path? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one of the things for me is that being at our right edge is fun, right? If we take on something that's too difficult, that's not fun. If we take on something that's too easy, that's boring. So fun is like that flow place of challenging yourself, but being at a place where you know that what's on the other side is is that growth that you're capable of because you're challenging yourself at the right spot. Yeah. And I think also like the process in itself, like, I don't know, like it feels good to, 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 to get over humps, I think, but I don't know. It's like, even with, with, with my daughter, you know, an inquiry for me is like, can the cleanup be just as much fun as the play? Right. So, okay. We just had all this play and like, now we're cleaning up or, you know, can doing the dishes or taking out the trash, like, can that be, you know, fun? And what I find that like, it, it can be like, it really can be like, it's fun to clean up and put things away. So, you know, it's, it can be fun to make a spreadsheet and get my finances in, in order and open up a new account and, and all of that, all those things that maybe I had previously labeled as hardships and not being interested in doing like, it's not so bad. <laughs> oh, I love that. I bet you're a great dad. Oh, thanks, Mendo. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's you know the other thing is I think the you know the self care and the realizing that it's a back and forth because I forget all the time and I continue to look at it as tr- I'm training myself. I don't know if it's not desensitizing to say it that way, but that that's kind of how how I see it. It's like I'm I'm training myself to um, form better habits, uh, that that serve me to serve other people. Yeah. I think of it as managing myself. So (laughs) I think it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I was thinking, uh, about just kind of your journey, maybe a little bit. And if you can, if you can share, I, I sense that, you know, it's, um, it's been a process for you to kind of open up and to, to step into kind of more of your power that, wow, I really have something to offer that can serve other people and really feeling secure in that. Um, but that maybe that wasn't always the case for you um, and that you've developed in, into that. I'd, I could be totally way off, but I, I wanted to ask you about it. Okay. So just radical honesty here. <laughs> um just like everybody, I have moments of feeling insecure or lack of confidence, but in general, that hasn't been the main drama for me, the main story for me. It's been more about a fear of being seen and a fear of the danger of being seen. And so when I think about, let's say, sharing yoga and things like that. I don't really think of it so much as like me and what I have to offer. I think of it as yoga and that I'm one conduit for sharing yoga. And so thinking of it that way, it just kind of takes the ego out of it. And so I can be a really passionate advocate for yoga. It's easy, right? There's so much potential wisdom and benefit 
in sharing the tools of yoga the way that I understand them. So I would say that although, yes, of course, imposter syndrome comes up, confidence issues come up, the part that's been alive for me, very alive, has been that fear of being seen more so than the confidence of what I have to offer. Hmm. So the fear of being seen, is that, was it comfortable for you for maybe when you were a child, you think, or earlier in your life to kind of stay back a little bit, that that was more of what was comfortable for you to not kind of step forward? Is that what you You know, mean? as a kid, I was a total ham and I loved being on stage. And I mm. think it's more like something that happened during puberty. Mm. And like when you're in, when the innocence of childhood is lost and people are cruel to you, then you develop coping mechanisms and defenses. And those defenses that worked at one point in your life aren't necessarily what you need later, but they can take some time and some conscious effort and practice to come down when they're no longer serving you. Do you think we all want to be seen or it can be more of um, uh, a personal, uh, a personal maybe ambition or tendency to be in, in the spotlight, so to speak? to have the attention on you. Um, yeah. I definitely don't think that we all want to be in the spotlight. Do we all want to be seen? I think that we want, I am having a hard time answering this because I don't know what it's like to be inside another person, but <laughs> the <fair>. best, <laughs> the best of my assumptions and just kind of like how I'm putting together my, my view of the world, I do think that we all want to be seen by somebody, that we want to have somebody understand us, but not necessarily a lot of people. And I see that inner conflict inside a lot of yoga teachers because many of us are introverted. And even though I was a gregarious child, I've come to learn that I'm very introverted as a person, meaning that I don't do well in large groups. I do fine teaching in large groups when my role is very clear, but I don't do fine. I don't do well with parties and like moving between groups and having to see a lot of different people and kind of take in the subtle social cues of many people at the same time. And so a lot of the yoga teachers I talk to feel this inner turmoil of, I want to share yoga but I don't really want to be seen. I don't want it to be about me. And I don't feel comfortable being in the spotlight. And so I think that for each yoga teacher, there's going to be a different solution. Like for some people, I think that they can focus on teaching one-to-one, -one, use word of mouth as a way of spreading the word and have both, right? But I do think that those people do still want to be seen by that one person at a time. And when we have that inner conflict of not wanting to be seen, I think that that is more of the defense mechanism coming from the limbic system, coming from wanting to self-protect because of experiences that we've had in the past that caused us to perceive danger in being seen. Yeah. Um... For me, I could say that, uh, that I have that inside of me, but then um, there's this other part that it feels important to share, you know, and, and that gets tricky too, because the ego will come into place and, you know, ask, who, who are you to share? You know, what, what other people need you type of thing? Um, but it's, it's more of a sense that there's something inside me that could be useful to other people and that that can give meaning and purpose uh, to my life. So from that place, it tends to give me the courage to step forward and do this sort of thing, you know, like what I'm doing right now. Yeah. I always say, why not you? Oh, yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Um, yeah, but it, it doesn't it go to like uh, kind of a relationship with ourselves and our, our self-worth and feeling like, am I valuable? Like that, that question even I think is an important one. Like, do I feel that I'm valuable or am I just another um, living, breathing body, <laughs> you know, moving about, taking up space? Well, I always ask and ask of others and ask of myself in this sort of a situation to first consider it without you in it. So think of somebody else. Is somebody else valuable? Almost everyone would say, yeah, everybody's valuable. So why, of course you're valuable too. And what not everybody fulfills what we would call dharma, their dharma. Not everybody lives up to the highest version of their purpose in the universe, but that doesn't actually make their inherent intrinsic value any less. We're not really on a, on an essential level. Our value is not based on what we accomplish. Mm -hmm. So if we start from there, if we start from every living thing has inherent value and we have just as much value as anyone else, then the question just becomes, well, what's my next step in order to move towards that potential that I have? Because I'm not going to get there. You know, that's the whole point of having a potential <laughs> is that it's somewhere outside of you to move towards. It's just a direction. And then what's valuable is figuring out the next step in that direction. It's an important point too, like that there isn't a, a peak in, in a sense. So I need to just get comfortable at climbing up the mountain for my entire life endlessly. And that's okay. I've come to realize that that's, that's fine. I don't need to get to the peak. Just progression is enough. Yeah. Do you practice, uh, sorry, not practice. Do you teach asana? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times students will come to class and they'll say, I want to learn crow pose. I want to learn handstand or Urvadhanyarasana. And so they're coming at it. They're starting with this idea that there's this end goal, this end result that they're going to get, and then they're going to have achieved yoga. And, you know, to some degree, we want to honor why they came to class and help them with their goals. But if you've been practicing for any length of time, you realize, well, after crow comes another version or maybe lifting your knees up or lifting one knee up and doing this crow with one leg back, right? There's no end in these asanas. So why would there be an end in, in anything, you know? And that's one of the things that I love about asana is it's this nice, very physical, tangible representation of some of the other principles that we're studying and practicing in yoga. But there becomes this real misidentification when you only study it from a more shallow perspective, you just see the poses and you like so many people think that they understand yoga. And so very few people do. Yeah. I want to, I want to get there <laughs> to understand yoga. No, I'm saying I, I want to get there. I want to get to that asana. I want to, I want to get to that pose. You know what I mean? I want to achieve, achieve that. You know, I'm, I'm glad it's perfect. I, I'm glad that you, you brought this up because I, I wanted to ask about kind of your general relationship uh, with yoga you know, for, for me, actually, I've realized that yoga is my safe haven from that kind of energy per personally. Um, growing up, having sports be, uh, probably the most important thing in my life when I was a kid, you know, so I was winning the game, uh, getting to the thing and then experiencing yoga was there. It just feels like that's kind of, if it's not competition to get between me and someone else, it's even competition with myself. Like, can I get there? And it's so important for for me to have a time out from that at the very least. Right now, actually, I don't really want much of that energy in my life at all. But especially when I practice, um, to not be concerned with that uh, at all. To again, just love the process, love how it how it feels. Um, 
But yeah, I, w- I wanted to ask about just like your general relationship with yoga and what it's done for you in in your life and why you've kind of decided to, um, you know, make it the thing or one of the things. Yeah. Well, yoga was what gave me a framework for discovering myself and for understanding how to work on moving through the world skillfully. So skill, skillful action is really the essence of my relationship with yoga. And there's, you know, there's so many different aspects to the philosophy that we can use as a lens to look through. Um, but ultimately to me, that's, that's the goal when you're a householder is to learn to move through the world world more skillfully. And you have these little laboratories called your asana practice and your meditation practice, but the laboratories aren't the goal for me. The goal is what do I learn during that practice that helps me be more present with my family, that helps me to be a clearer teacher, that allows me to sometimes even be like a conduit for these teachings and share them with others. So what you were talking about earlier was, I think what we call vairagya, the release of achievement and the attempt to see the essence of a situation or a thing rather than kind of the the external trappings. And the practice as it's presented, at least in uh, Patanjali's system, is has this, this balance between abhyasa and vairagya. So we have these practices that are consistent and that we return to over and over and over. Right. That's kind of what I'm talking about with the laboratory or the container for the practice. And then inside this container, we do the practice, but we recognize that we can't actually control the outcome and the outcome is not even the point. Yeah. Do you, um, do you sense or think that the definition of yoga is something that also will continue to expand. It's like my, my introduction, I think for most of us, we see it as basically, you know, asana or hatha yoga uh, is what we feel that yoga is. Um, For me, it's such a benefit now to have had that expanded into a way of life. Uh, Yoga is everything. It's how I do everything. Um, Yeah. Anything to share on that? Are you asking if I think public perception about yoga is going to change? Yeah, exactly. Like, is is it still going to continue to be kind of this physical uh, uh, physical practice for a long time, or are are people starting to move into um, an interest in in yoga beyond beyond the physical exercise? Gosh, I really don't know. If I had a magic ball and could predict the future, um, well, I don't know that I would have wanted a magic ball (laughs) to predict 2020, you know, like, I'm not sure I would have really wanted to know. I thought it was kind of a blessing that we, I mean, I, I have some smart people in my life who told me this is not going to just be a few weeks or a few months. And so I had that kind of, okay. I recognize that that's probably going to be the case, but at least I don't have to feel the whole, you know, amount of time stretching in front of me. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. I imagine that it will, that the public perception of yoga is going to become more sophisticated because hopefully that is the, benefit of all of these new modes of communication 
in an ideal world, all of our understanding about whatever we're interested in learning about is going to become more sophisticated because we have access to all this information. That would be best case scenario. And I think it's yoga always has had this history of cross-pollinating with other traditions. So the principles and ideas from yoga are going to be absorbed into other modes of thinking as they already have been. And the principles and ideas from other traditions and other modes of thinking are going to be absorbed into yoga. This has always been the history of yoga. So I think that the core teachings of yoga are going to continue to spread because people like you and I are going to be exposed to them, are going to practice them, are going to say, wow, this is making a difference for me. I want to share it. I appreciate the way that you answered that too. It makes me think of, of humility, right? And uh, I, I noticed that it's a real a benefit to myself to have that practice too, right? And like the tendency, I think, of our culture is to take our opinions very seriously and to want to almost pretend like as a human, I'm capable of knowing more than I'm actually capable of. Uh, so anything to share about perhaps maybe checking yourself sometimes to say, I don't need to know the answer to that or reminding yourself that I'm only capable of, of knowing so much. Yeah. You know, the human brain is fascinating and wild and we know very little about it. The more that I practice, the more I feel I don't know. And the more I'm willing to admit that I don't know. But I also want to stay away from feeling superior about it. Like, because you can, <laughs> this is why it's so convoluted, <laughs> right? You can be superior about being humble, <laughs> you know? Um, so what has been powerful for me is just recognizing how scary it is to not know and how a lot of times those things that are emotionally scary are, are the most rewarding things. And that that's telling me that's worth exploring. It's worth going into that place of not knowing and being there and kind of living there in those moments when you want assurance, because we all want assurance. We all want confidence and right and wrong. This is my right next step. And the world is too complex. You know, that's why we oversimplify everything because <laughs> it's freaking complex and our brains would explode if we could really, if we were omniscient, our brains would explode, right? If we could understand everything. So we have to, in order to function, we have to simplify things. But I think it's helpful to admit that we're oversimplifying and to practice sitting in the complexity without needing to change it and oversimplifying it, oversimplify it at least sometimes. To stay humble, and I wouldn't even call myself humble, just more open and aware that I know very little. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'd put it like that too. It's just kind of alignment with what is I have my limitations of knowing and, and that's, that's all right. Um, and it's finally, very uncomfortable. To, yeah. It's uncomfortable. You said it's very uncomfortable to yeah. not know, you know, at least for me, I, I want to know I'm curious. I'm a curious person. And sometimes I just have to let just being curious be enough but it's pretty painful, you know, especially if you're seeing social media and you see two people arguing like the opposite points and they're both so confident and they both like make sense. And I'm like, oh, not knowing is really uncomfortable here. I don't like it. But the more that I, I, I think that the only functional thing to do is to relax into that because I don't want to push myself onto that side of being right, which is so easy. It's it, like, that's the natural instinct. Just like we were talking about 
early in this conversation. There's so much natural instinct to be like, I'm right. This, you know, and to watch that, that's part of the yoga practice, right? To watch the thoughts, watch the vrittis. What is attractive? What vrittis are attractive? What vrittis are like pulling me in? And can I pause and kind of let them flow through instead of grabbing onto them? Yeah, yeah. When I think about that situation, uh, you know, watching, you know, two points of view that are very strong and, and trying to decide, you know, maybe, maybe which one I, I agree with for me, you know, I noticed that, you know, the part of me that wants to come to a conclusion, uh, and, and find, you know, what my opinion is or where I stand that's related to wanting to be impressive in the eyes of others so that later on, you know, I can, I can essentially look good, you know, and have an answer for someone else that might be asking me a question or, you know, uh, and, and so that's a part of the work for me too, is, is, is just shedding that, that's like, like, can I truly be okay, whether or not I'm complimented or criticized, you know, that's an ongoing practice for me, but one that um, is just so important, you know, because if I am going to do service in this world, I need to, I need to let go of that. Um, finally, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, about something I saw that you wrote, uh, in terms of one of your passions, and that is finding kind of the commonality between business principles and yogic principles. Uh, I know that's, that's a lot of what you talk about in general. So, um, but, but briefly, I think it's, it, you know, it's so interesting, uh, to look at what the commonalities are, right? Because there tends to be this disconnect between, you know, yoga and business, that business is kind of vilified and money in general and, and that sort of thing. So I love that you're addressing what are the, the common principles there. So uh, anything to share there in terms of what you've discovered in terms of common principles? So do we have like two or three more hours? <laughs> you don't have to answer if you don't want to. We can, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I will definitely um, do my best to be succinct. So let's start with Viveka which is discernment. And it's essential. It's an essential quality of our practice. And it's absolutely essential in business. We have to discern what is sustainable inside our business. And one of the places where I see yoga teachers getting really resistant, not all of them, but a, probably a majority, is looking at numbers and talking about numbers, talking about money. And the thing about numbers is that they're very neutral. They're very clear. They provide a, a type of satya, a type of truth telling that is not available with using language. So it's not in any way that I think numbers should rule everything or that I think that intuition is not valuable. But we were talking earlier about the limbic system and our tendency to see danger where it doesn't exist and to, to kind of go into fear states. It's not super easy to tell the difference between intuition and anxiety. But if you look at numbers, they give you a very clear picture that isn't really open to interpretation. Am I making progress or not? Is this, do the numbers add up? So, I see in this case, this willingness to look at numbers is a yogic practice, is, is a one tool to help us with satya and viveka. And from the other direction, and this is, these are just like little tiny snippets of the whole picture here, right? But from the other direction, I think the practice of abhyasa vairagya is incredibly valuable as a business owner. Because as a business owner, if you get overly wrapped up in the results of one specific experiment, one product or one idea that you had, you're gonna miss out on the lessons from that. And you're gonna miss on how you can step stone from there and, and grow and pivot and figure out like how, what to do next. So abhyasa in business, is going to be, you know, taking the next step, whatever, whatever you're working on, 
but not with a sense of, oh my gosh, this has to work or I'm going to explode. But with that curiosity of, I wonder what's going to happen here. What will I learn from this? So to me, business has things to teach. Yoga has things to teach. They're both these frameworks for filtering information. And hopefully they lead us to a life that is authentic and of service, but there's no guarantee, right? We have seen so many examples of people using yoga in unethical ways. This has come out, especially in the last 10 years. And that's the case for business too. So neither of these frameworks are like pristine in and of themselves. It's how do we use them? And I just believe that they have a lot to teach each other and, and together they create a more stable and holistic framework, at least for me to, to live. Mm. Thanks for sharing that so succinctly. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty impressed with myself. <laughs> that was, that was, I think you nailed it. <laughs> um, so I, I want to ask if, if uh, someone would like to kind of follow up, obviously they can uh, listen to your podcast, any other information that you'd like to share um, if people want to get to know you more and more about what the work, the work that you're doing. Yeah. My website is teachingyoga.net, and you can find the podcast on there. You can find some information about how to work with me. I also am on Instagram at yoga.teacher.resource and have a Facebook group for yoga teachers which is just the yoga teacher resource Facebook group. So pretty much anywhere that you just search yoga teacher resource, you'll probably find me. Hmm. I'm feeling very grateful to have spent this time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You asked amazing questions. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.